Daniel Perry has multiple businesses surrounding motion graphics. Dean Crockett does short films, music videos, and works for App Harvest. This week, we're talking to two of our friends, two creatives who are forging the future of digital media in Kentucky. Let's do it. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antetomaso here in Chicago, Illinois. Down in Lexington, we have my co-host Evan Knowles, and we are super excited about today's episode. We have some awesome guests. I know it's going to be an awesome conversation coming ahead. Before we jump in, though, let's talk about this podcast. We have had a ton of momentum over the past few weeks, and we want to thank you guys for that. Our listeners are the reason that we are growing. You guys are talking about it. You're sharing it on social media. So thank you for that, but we don't want you to stop. If you haven't shared the podcast yet, please share it. Instagram stories is my favorite way to share podcasts. Make sure to tag us at Mental Tech Pod. Um, But however you want to share it, even if it's just word of mouth, we really think we're doing something cool here and we're beginning to build a community. So we just want to keep expanding that. So thank you if you've already done it. Please do it if you have not. Please keep doing it if you have. Um, and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or a review. Uh, we like those five-star reviews. But tell us what you really think. Um, that helps us move up in the charts. Apple Podcasts is a super popular platform, obviously. But if you listen to it somewhere else, give us that rating and review there. It's going to help us wherever you listen. So thank you again. We're super excited to continue to provide awesome content for you guys. And I think that this week is definitely going to fit that niche we are trying to highlight all kinds of creators all kinds of entrepreneurs all kinds of tech minds in kentucky and the midwest and i think we have two really cool people today that are covering all of those bases right evan yeah so we got two of our great friends on Mm -hmm. the podcast i'm sitting next to dean crockett and we've got uh danny perry as well who's one of my best friends and my roommate so welcome on guys Thanks, Evan. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Uh, thanks, Dan. Really happy to be on the show. Yeah, so we wanted to uh, you know, get you guys on and talk about you know, digital media, digital entertainment. You both are doing some really cool things in the space. Um, I think Kentucky, from what I've seen, is you know, lagging in that. So I really wanted to kind of bring more awareness to you know, what's going on and, and what you guys are doing and bring more light to what you guys are working on, which is some really cool stuff. Um, so yeah, before we you know get into exactly what you're doing now, let's go over backgrounds. Uh, Dean, if you want to start, since you're sitting right here next to me, and go over you know where you're from, your education, and and you know what you've done as a career so far. Yeah, sure, glad to. So um, let's see. My name is Dean, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. I moved to Lexington for UK, but grew up my whole life uh, between Louisville and my grandparents' farm in Etown, and. Uh, all you really need to know about my career is my childhood growing up, me and my best friend Nick, we used to uh, get into video production. And it all kind of started with my mom's film camera. We made our first YouTube show right at like the beginning of the era, uh, moved on to our second YouTube show in high school. And um, I just kind of always was about theater and 
making movies. Uh, right up until I got to college, at which point I had to make a decision about what I was going to do with my life. And Oh, that dreaded decision. Yeah, exactly. So, As if you should know at that age. So once my parents told me that I was not going to be majoring in film <laughs> or the arts, and I wasn't going to be packing up and moving to Hollywood, I decided to get into computer science because uh, it always went hand in hand with what I saw as media was this marriage of art and technology. And so growing up, I was always really interested in trying to push the boundaries of, you know, finding new tools for making art. Yeah. That's actually what got me into virtual reality, which is like my biggest passion. Yeah, we'll be talking about that here in a bit. Yeah, well, I'm glad to. But um, that's when, uh, when I was deciding what I wanted to do with college. I just thought, well, I guess I'll get into computers. Because if anything, it's going to help me down the road make art. And uh, that's exactly what I did. And I went to UK and joined the engineering program. And suddenly got thrown face first into the world of programming and software development. Something I knew absolutely nothing about. But uh, at the same time, I basically got a whole new passion for what I saw as like a new form of art. And, you know, like I said, you see, always seeing technology as a different tool for making well, it's, things. Well, it's a paintbrush. Exactly. Yeah. And I had never looked at it that way. So once I made my first, you know, Angry Birds Python game and then my first uh, C++ Scrabble game, and I realized that I was literally just making artwork creations using code. Um, that's when I, uh, really knew that I had picked the right career for myself, made the right decision and, uh, X, Y, Z, I ended up getting into drones, getting back into video after like two years of software development. And I saw myself doing weddings, uh, real estate, like anything I could with a camera, yeah. which is actually how I met Danny, uh, my freshman year walking across campus, carrying a drone. Oh, so yeah. I asked me if I film weddings, and <laughs> I said yes. I hadn't done one before, but I knew I was going to. So uh, that's how I got my first video gig, and that's what introduced me to a Lexington company called uh, Trifection Entertainment. And it was, <laughs> at a meeting, it was at a meeting there one day that I saw a guy up on the second floor balcony talking about how he made his own drone. And I said, oh, did you now? <laughs> and that guy was Danny Perry. And um, I guess I didn't that know that's bring... how you two met. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That we didn't know either until years later. But Danny and I first met uh, at a meeting of friends at Trifection Entertainment when we were both yeah. getting our feet on the ground. And oh. then uh, about a year later, I end up at Fuji being a digital media specialist. After I had kind of found my footing between uh, computer science and and filmmaking, after a couple years of freelancing under my belt. And that's when Danny became my boss <laughs> and when I met you guys. And that yeah. brings me up to now. I did not know the trifection was the first common connection. Yeah, it was very funny because I, I was on my way out the door when Eric Gaines, the um, lead over at trifection, goes, hey, Dean, some guy up here says he built his own drone. <laughs> and I've literally got my foot out the door with my hand on the doorknob. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he said that, did he? <laughs> And uh, that's, hilarious. that's when I knew I had to shake this guy's hand. And that was Danny. Yep. Awesome. Well, Danny, uh, give your background. Sure. So uh, let's see. I started out making videos when I was in middle school, actually. And I was uh, more about the special effects portion of it as opposed to the actual videography and cinematography. Um, so I really fell 
uh, fell in love with uh, special effects when I was in middle school. And uh, that kind of artistic vibe kept up with me in high school, where I started uh, making lawn boards for people and painting them and designing them and going through the whole process of uh, what it takes to make lawn boards. And uh, I really fell in love with actually crafting things. And uh, from there, I went on to go to college. And it was college where uh, I met Evan Knowles. And uh, and from there, we started a, uh, a startup company called Financy, which I'm sure that you guys have talked about on here before. But Yeah, you were on an episode about that. We were sitting around the table yeah. at your old apartment. <laughs> that was like one of the first okay. ones. That was an OG yeah. Middle Tech episode right there. Yeah, Evan okay. was making salmon during the episode while he was playing. That sounds like Evan. <laughs> um, Always eating. That's a fact. Um, so yeah, so I started uh, working at this startup company with Evan and some of my uh, other friends that you guys know. And from there, I really started developing this passion for After Effects and more specifically motion graphics. And uh, that's combining the uh, animation portion of graphic design, kind of coupling those two things together. So I really loved uh, finding all about this really deep program called Adobe After Effects. Um, from there, I started learning more and more about it, took some online boot camps, um, never did any formal education for After Effects and motion graphics, but uh, slowly worked my way into becoming uh, competent enough to get a full-time job at Fuji. And it was where at Fuji that I started helping to grow their media presence, and their digital presence. And that's when we hired on Dean and uh, a couple other guys and uh, together my uh my friend uh, Snow Row and myself co-managed that team to create digital assets on Fuji's behalf. Um, and while working at Fuji, I ended up um, starting to work with some different developers to make After Effects plugins. And I sell those to um, other various After Effects users in order to help create motion graphics. So I started that company, started making these different um, these different tools that other artists can use in the industry. And I've slowly built that into becoming a, uh, a business that helps uh, support myself. And I'm continuing to explore that path of uh, what a grander idea of that industry could look like. And um, between all that, I continue to do freelance motion graphics works for, uh, for various brands out there, including different agencies and in Lexington, such as, uh, such as Fuji, and then also some other agencies over on the West Coast. Um, and then in between all that, I do a little bit of um, social media branding for one of our plugins called Datamosh and uh, built a little bit of a following on there and started making some apparel for that company as well. But I think that takes me pretty much up to date of where I am currently. Yeah, that's awesome. And you guys have, you know, one, one of those common connections I really want to drill down into because we were all part of it. And you guys were definitely kind of thrown into the fire to say, with with digital media and you guys were thrown into the fire i say that because you know when we all joined or at least when i joined fuji we really had no idea what it would become and i think when you guys joined there was a kind of a better idea of you know what kind of clients we were working with but right off the bat you guys are working with some of the world's biggest clients so talk about what that experience was like at fuji and, and kind of how that you know affected your career and, and gave you a you know set of tools to work with um well, I, I think that it was really uh, eye-opening to going from working with some mom-and-pop ice cream shop in downtown Lexington to working with uh, brands such as like Netflix. And so 
uh, for me personally, it really um, inspired me to learn a whole lot more, dedicate much more time to this to this art form and uh, really expand my knowledge so that I can keep up with what the brands such as Netflix, HBO, you know, Warner Brothers are accustomed to. So learning to uh, learning all these new skills for what motion graphics is, how to do it more efficiently and how to do it on a level of quality that's comparable to what these brands expect is something that uh, I, we all had to do. And um, learning how to do that and really pushing ourselves to uh, keep up with that quality was one of the biggest growing experiences that I've ever had. And definitely thankful for Fuji and uh, our team that helped us all put it together. I don't think I fully appreciated just how good the team we had there at Fuji was. I mean, Danny, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in Lexington, you're one of the best uh, motion graphics people, you know, maybe bar like UK and a, and a few others. But when we were there and, you know, we were just working with these clients and, and going through, you know, activation after activation, I was just astounded, you know, by, by what was going on. And you guys were, were blowing me away and, and surprising me. Um, and then just, you know, from a marketing perspective as well, like being able to take that content as I worked hand in hand with your team and, you know, and share it out and, and push it out there. And I didn't appreciate that happening in Lexington. I think we kind of surprised ourselves sometimes too. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> you know, the one thing that I think I would say I took away from it as much as I learned and, you know, grew as a video producer, the thing that really stuck with me was demystifying the industry, I think, because coming into it cold, I mean, I would have thought for me to do a project for, you know, a company under Disney or a, a Procter & Gamble company sounds so insurmountable and like, like not something I could do even with the right tools. It sounds like something you it would take a whole team to do, and you know where do you even begin? Uh, not just on the on the creative end, but on the execution end. And I imagined all these pipelines and all these systems that that I was making up in my mind that I, that I wouldn't be able to ever conquer, or compete with. But um, that's the one thing that I think I really took away from working with all those big companies and those big brands was just. Uh, just how obtainable it is yeah. to to make to work to work with another company. They're just a, they're just a company, you know. Is is almost the same as working with any other brand that we worked with. And I don't know. I guess that's what I would take away from it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and, and what Fuji did, I think, you know, when we all look back at this in you know twenty years and say, you know, and reflect back on our time at Fuji, it was just such an, a, an assembly of amazing, talented people you know, gathered around an awesome idea. And there was a lot of raw talent too. There was a lot of people that, you know, were just really talented at something, but they really hadn't had an opportunity to prove it yet on that level. And I think everybody really stepped up and did that. And that's why Fuji, you know, has grown to where it was. But I think, you know, looking back, especially, you know, in 20 years and what all those people that went through Fuji are going to do for the city of Lexington and, you know, wherever they go after that, that's what's going to be the story of, of Fuji, at least for us, you know, is what it did for our careers and kind of put us on that on that spot to where we had to perform because we really didn't have a choice. You know, I was thrown yeah. into sales. I never had any sales experience, but next thing I know, I'm you know working like you guys, right, with Turner Broadcasting and Netflix and Nike and you know, all these crazy brands. 
it, um, it all happened it so forced us to be great. It was it happened so quickly that we didn't have time to think about it. You know, I think to really consider not just how like monumentous it was, but like how are we doing this? You, you it's like they say, you know, you never wrap your head around like what it takes to grow up. It just happens to you. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's what it felt like, just being thrust into that and, and treading water yeah. until you're until you're swimming. I mean, the team was just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you know, I could you know talk praises on everybody there. It was just a, a crazy assembly of people, and uh, so it's you know a testament to putting together a team and seeing how far something can go. For yeah. sure, and you know, going back to what you were talking about, Dean, before we move on, real quick, saying that you know all the clients were just companies. From a social media perspective, which is, you know, what I was dealing with day in and day out, it was really interesting to deal with these these big clients, these big brands, these big accounts that you see all mm-hmm. the time. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we saw our content on there, both copy that we wrote, content that you guys made. But quite honestly, you also saw a spelling mistake here and there, and you saw... Uh, you know, you saw people that would mess up a reply every now and then. And, and, you know, just being able to see that, you realize that in this age of technology, like everything is so democratized. Um, and it, it doesn't matter if it's a multinational corporation or, a, you know, a small little company. People are, are going through the same things and dealing with the same stuff. And we could too. Yeah, I don't even know if the brands ultimately knew how young. Yeah. <laughs> And I wondered if they knew, and I wonder if they knew if it would have been, if, it probably wouldn't have been different, but I just wonder if they knew that college dropouts that were 21, <laughs> 22 years old were working on their $200,000 marketing campaign. You know? Well, Evan, when you went into sales meetings, did people ever make comments about that when they saw you? I got a few like, you know, congrats, like this is awesome, you're, you know, the age you are and meeting with us. Yeah. Like when I first walked into MTV and we- Meeting with us. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was like, when I first went to New York and met with like MTV and like, we went up to like the top floor of the Viacom building on, you know, Broadway is like, it was scary. And, uh, you know, they definitely noticed how young I was and I was pitching them. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was cool from my end just to be able to interface with people on that level at that age. And, you know, I was still in college during a lot of those initial meetings. So it was a wild ride, man. It was, it's fun mm-hmm. to look back on. You know, I would almost relate it to some of my experience I have freelancing, and maybe Danny could speak to this. But I come, I came before Fuji. The only experience I had was a very extensive music video portfolio, <laughs> working with like the most random off the wall celebrities. And the thing that like was so surprising and gratifying and frustrating about being a freelancer was just the amount of responsibility that you don't want to deal with that gets thrust upon you when you're on set and there's absolutely no plan and you you just have to take on all these different roles and uh and then when you triumph you know in spite of all that uh, it's more gratifying so yeah let's touch on you know let's get into what you guys are working on right now and um dean you know let's let's bridge into to you and you know, I know one of the things you work on, you still work on, is music videos. And, you know, we have a very Kentucky-based audience. And so talk yeah. about the awesome, you know, rapper who's yeah. up and coming that you uh, make Can music Can you talk about with. that? Oh, my God. It is time for me to name drop already. Whenever I'm at the bar with Dean, <laughs> and we're like sitting there and I'm introducing Dean to somebody, I'm like, 
behind Dean's back, I'll say this guy. This guy makes music videos for uh, Jack Harlow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, there thank it is. You. you set him up and then knock him yeah. down. Yeah. Wow. All right. Airballed right for right for. <laughs> no. Um. So when I that that was what's interesting is that was really my first soiree into freelancing. Almost immediately, the first person I ever met with a camera was my great friend, who I'd love to name drop, Brian Campbell, BC Photography, who got me into the industry and was basically I was his apprentice really for a couple of years. And gosh, you know, now now you're making me think about it. Probably the second music gig that I ever had was working with, um, what was it? It wasn't Sundown. It was Ice Cream by Jack Harlow. So anyone that knows Ice Cream, I think circa 2014, had a lot to do with that music video. And um, yeah, ever since then, I've kind of been working my way around <laughs> uh Jack, the homies, um, Atlantic Records. I feel weird talking about it, but <laughs> you should be proud, dude. It's awesome. Yeah, no. Is he signed with Atlantic Records? Uh, he is signed to Generation Now, which is a subset, I believe, of Atlantic. But in any case, uh, it, it brings me back to what I think is so interesting: is working with Jack and working with local Lexington artists. Which, in general, I work with a lot of Kentucky artists, and um, Jack was just one of the first. But it's like working for a startup company. You have both a very you know, intense and frustrating cycle of being your own boss and being all the employees underneath yourself. And uh, yeah, it's like with great power comes great responsibility. You're, you're also working for an amazing startup here in town. I'm wearing the hat uh, App Harvest. You're new there. It's an amazing company. You just raised a lot of money. They're really doing some amazing things. So talk about... Uh, you know, App Harvest and, and what you're doing there. Sure. So really after Fuji, after I left Fuji um, and graduated UK this year, I just really wanted to go back to the startup environment. I wanted to be responsible for building a brand from the ground up. Yeah. I missed, you know, I, I thought about working for a big agency. I even had a couple opportunities at really big brands, but I knew that I was going to be put on small projects that weren't my idea that I would be executing at a desk all day. And what I wanted instead was what I had at Fuji, which was where you never knew what you were going to be working on next week. You were, you know, taking this amazing initiative. And it's uh, actually our CEO, Jonathan, calls it building the plane as you fall. <laughs> and that's what I wanted again. And I didn't think I was going to find it. So after I graduated UK just a few months ago, I was completely prepared to move back to Louisville and, you know, just see what happens. Crash on mom's couch if I need to. But I got this amazing opportunity, uh, thanks to one of our friends from Fuji, Peter, yeah. reached out to me and got me this awesome job building a brand once again with App Harvest. So what, so, is, what is App Harvest doing? So we We're are, actually going to have them on the podcast soon, but why don't you kind of preface a little bit sure, what, sure. What, they're, what they're building? Um, Everyone else that works there could say this better than me, but App Harvest is building the largest one-structure greenhouse in America. So we're building a 60-acre fruits and vegetables greenhouse here in Appalachia, well, here in Kentucky, over in Moorhead. And uh, it's going to be just the biggest single structure under one roof yeah. uh, for producing fruits and vegetables that America has. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because... A lot of people are confused about this, and they have a million questions when they first hear about it. Like, number one, why are you building a 60-acre greenhouse in Appalachia? 
The reason is because, from my limited understanding, the interstate intersection of Appalachia, Kentucky, is most ideal for delivering to 80% of the United States in a single day's drive. And what not a lot of people appreciate is that even though America has so much food, we do have a problem with food in that we're getting like most of our produce from Mexico. We get, I think, four and a half billion pounds yeah. a year of tomatoes imported from south of the border. And what happens when they do that is they take a green, unripe vegetable, you know, like a tomato that hasn't been ripened yet. It's not ready to be eaten for several days. Yeah. And they put it on a truck and then it ripens on a truck over the course of five days as it gets shipped across the country to us. And that's when you eat it. So that's why anytime you get a tomato, I, I'm calling you out, Wendy's. I love your Dave's Hot and Juicy, but the tomato is the worst part. I can't eat a tomato like anywhere that I go out to eat because they're so gross. Because I spent half of my childhood in Elizabethtown eating tomatoes right off the vine. Fresh. So I know what a real tomato tastes like. And any tomato that I get at a fast food place, it's not a tomato. So anyway, that's what App Harvest is doing. We're bringing healthy you know, fresh fruits and vegetables to 80% of the country in a single day's drive yeah. and trying to knock out all that crazy importing. Yeah, we can't wait to get Jonathan on. I'm excited yeah. for you guys to talk to him because he's going to say everything I just said way better. He's going to make it sound so good. <laughs> That's why he's CEO. <laughs> and they're creating a ton of jobs in Appalachia, which we definitely know that they can use it. So we're excited. Yeah, we just started. Excited to see what they do. We're, we're just now starting construction right now. So there's a lot of excitement to come. Yeah. I'm sure you're getting a lot of cool content of that. Yeah, well, that's what's so exciting about it for me is I basically joined right as everything kicked off. Yeah. Um, right as they got, you know, the funding to go ahead and break ground with this new site. And I'm basically in charge of their going public campaign. I remember when you were, you know, considering going there and we were sitting in my apartment at a party and I'm like Yeah. You're like, dude, I've got this I've got this job I might I might take. Should I what do you think? I'm like, who is it? And the second you said App Harvest, I'm like, dude, you need to take that ASAP. That's right. I remembered. Like, yeah. I, actually, Evan, that was one of like the like the decision-making points for me. I was sitting out there on your porch because I was really going back and forth. Yeah. I really wanted to stay my own boss. Yeah. But uh, no, man. Yeah. I'm glad you did that because App Harvest is doing some really special things. And when you talk about doing a big project and building a big brand, that's I can't think of a whole lot of brands in Kentucky that yeah. are bigger than what they're going to be. Honestly, I feel like I just got lucky once again. It's just like Fuji uh, all over Lightning again. Lightning can strike twice. Like my experience with Fuji yeah. all over again. All right. Uh, Danny, let's hear yes, what uh, you're working on. Uh, I live with you, and so you're working hard on a few different projects. Uh, the one I think you should spend the most time on is uh, the software that you and our good friends Sam and Michael are working on. Um so why don't you get into that whole project and, and talk about what that is? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I think that I mentioned that, um, you know, a little bit about my software development um, uh, endeavors with building different plugins for Adobe After Effects. And I think that it helps if I preface this a little by a little bit by explaining what that means. So Adobe After Effects is the industry standard for making motion graphics. Now, motion graphics are things that you see on every single type of commercial. You see a lot in different movies, um, on Facebook ads. It's pretty prevalent when it comes to digital media. And, uh, and After Effects is the way that you do that. 
So um, I am a freelance motion graphics artist, and I've been doing a lot of freelancing. And through my freelancing experience, I've learned that there are certain processes and certain effects that um, a traditional freelance artist does or a motion graphics artist does that can be done better. And so through those different experiences of freelancing, I've uh, created some different products to, to solve those problems. Uh, problems and uh, and also enhance um, what is already a great piece of software, uh, Adobe After Effects. So I got together with, um, when I was first starting out, my first product that I released is a product called Lazy. And not to get into too many details about the intricacies of what Lazy is and how it enhances motion graphics, but basically makes, um, it makes, uh, trying to think of the best way to explain this to a non-motion graphics um, <laughs> demographic, but it basically uh, uh, makes the things that move across your screen look uh, a lot more uh, unified and, um, and easy looking. Uh, it just makes it look a little bit more eye appealing when a bunch of different things that are moving across your screen are all not happening at the same time, but are instead offset. So that was yeah, real-, real quick. Hey, Danny, uh, Think of an example for those people that don't even know what maybe motion graphics are. What's probably the best example of a motion graphics film or commercial or anything that somebody might be familiar with that is actually motion graphics? Sure. So let's see. Um, When you go and you are watching a Facebook ad and you see a Facebook ad come on for a new line of clothing that you are really interested in in, uh, exploring. And at the end of the commercial, there might be a bunch of footage of some people trying this apparel on. And then at the end of the video, you normally will see their the company's logo pop up in a very intricate, unique way. And so let's say there's a bunch of different lines that are coming across the logo and the, uh, te- the font of the logo's text is writing on. Um, all those different things that go into making that uh, logo look animated is what you would consider motion graphics. The way that I think about it, Danny, is like the animation for a logo or graphic design, like things that aren't a cartoon, but for moving what a graphic designer would do. Is that a good way to think about it? Absolutely. It's it's essentially, if you have any understanding what graphic design is, if you take that and you actually animate those different um, graphic Mm -hmm. pieces in graphic design, that's what motion graphics is. Yeah, I'm sure people have a ton of examples that they can think of, but it's not like a common vernacular like graphic design or photoshopping or stuff like that is, you know, it's different. You're right, it's not. And I I probably should have a better way of explaining (laughs) than I just did. But yeah, no, I think that you you hit the nail on the head, Nate. Like it's it's not a very common um, industry. It's not something that everybody knows, and it's something that uh, it does need some explaining to really wrap mm-hmm. your mind around. Um, but yeah, no, I started making these tools that help motion graphics artists do their job better, basically. So yeah. I think that a good jumping off uh, point is when I first started getting into this side of uh, this side of motion graphics, where I was creating programs for their motion graphics artists is when I released my first product called Lazy. And uh, like I was saying, Lazy basically allows things to move across the screen um, in an offset amount of time and basically just look um, look more smooth. And that's a pretty bad way to describe it. But for all intents and purposes, that's what it does. 
And traditionally in After Effects, that was a very tedious process to do. You're basically taking a bunch of different assets that are moving across the screen and you're dragging them all across your timeline. And it took a long time to do, especially if you have hundreds or thousands of assets. Yep. So I get this idea. I'm like, okay, I'm doing this all the time. My job here at Fuji, there needs to be a better way to do this. So I go hunt a Reddit and I post this job wanted for some type of developer that could help me accomplish this and write a program that could function inside of Adobe After Effects. So I find some guy, he hacks it together. He's the worst developer I've ever met in my life. Like after he finishes the project, which he misquoted me by like a thousand percent. I'm pretty sure I paid like 10x what he originally quoted me. And then after he finishes this project, which it, it works, granted it works. And I'm able to put it onto the online marketplace that um, is the industry standard for selling motion graphics for, uh, yep. tools, a company called AE Scripts. So I, I passed the test. I'm able to put my product onto um, AE Scripts and lo and behold, it, it does fairly well. I start, I'm able, I'm starting to generate some revenue from there, support myself a little bit. I'm like, hey, you know, this is really cool. I put in a bunch of upfront work. Uh, I branded it a certain way that I wanted to. And now I just get to sit back and reap the benefits from it. And it's very passive income. So I'm like, I like this quite a bit. You know, I like doing motion graphics and it's a big, very big passion of mine. But, you know, sitting back and collect, collecting checks isn't so bad either. Yeah. Um, I continue to um, do more motion graphics work and do more freelance work and uh, I come up with a, a another idea for a type of plugin that would be um, applicable to being into Adobe After Effects and that other Adobe After Effects users might want to use. And uh, that product is Datamosh. And Datamosh is our, our still our number one selling product. And uh, so at this point, I have made some money doing the whole lazy plugin and I get together with one of my good friends, Sam Marks, who is currently, uh, who was at that time, the VP of engineering at Fuji. And I get together with him. I'm like, hey, man, you know, I've had some success in this industry with uh, this product right here. Um, I have this other idea for a glitch type uh, program or glitch type plugin that allows users to basically break media compression, break file compression, and it renders out very um, unique and interesting uh, glitch effects on different footage files. So I'm like, this is a really cool um, effect. It's extremely hard to accomplish. Every traditional method of making this is very outdated. It doesn't run on current operating systems. I'm like, we gotta, we gotta do something here. There's an opportunity. So we get together over the course of about two months, we go ahead and we develop our product called Datamosh, brand it appropriately, um, test it with a bunch of different users and make sure everything is working correctly. And then we go and release that to the market. Um, ends up being a pretty big hit. It's one of the top sellers on AE Scripts. And uh, I think that we sold about 2,700 copies at this point. Nice flex. <laughs> I'm just trying to give you some perspective there. No, but you've clearly built like a big audience surrounding it. And I follow your Instagram account for it. And, you know, there's so many people out there that post and share what they've done. And there's definitely a lot of people who appreciate the work and the time that you've put into making that. Yeah. And I think that one of the coolest things about that is being able to, you know, create this product that is going to be used in all these different other projects. Like, you know, it, I've, sold a decent amount of copies and there's a bunch of mm -hmm. people around the world that are using it to create their own type of art. And so I feel like I'm able to 
facilitate that a little bit. And that's a very rewarding piece of, uh, of this industry and what I do. Dude, I think it is the coolest thing because, you know, we were talking about like the, the, how cool it was to create a brand at Fuji, but you've created basically a paintbrush, you know? I mean, I, I haven't even really taken the time to appreciate it that way, but you created a medium for people to create their own brand if they wanted. And I don't even, I don't even think it's really like a drop in the water the amount of content that you end up seeing that people end up kicking back to you. Oh yeah. You know, you, you no don't way. even know the reach of data mosh yet. No way. Yeah. It's, and that's, that's one of the things that I wish I knew like every single project that was made using data yeah. mosh, but that just doesn't, it, it, that doesn't happen, but it's still very cool to see what little is made with data mosh. Uh, just like whether it's in my Instagram feed or I'll be watching a music video and be like, Oh damn. Like that was, that was just data mosh right there. So yeah, are are you comfortable talking about what that music video was at all? Um, yeah, so th one of the music videos that um, is pretty uh, pretty well known, and uh, especially the song is pretty well known. Um, that I have a pretty firm hunch was uh, was uh, made using one of my plugins, Datamosh is the video to sicko mode by travis scott and there's an effect Whoa. yeah there, there's an effect uh that happens i know which one you're twice. talking about yeah yeah it happens twice throughout the video and when i first watched it i'm like hold up and i pause the video <laughs> back and i'm like i'm pretty sure that data mosh was used right here and so so I, you're talking about the shot with drake and the smoke bombs and yep. then the one where travis walks away by the pool yes Yep, definitely the Drake. How did he make the one? How do you think you could make? Was it duplicating P frames like rotoscoped around Travis's body? No, there wasn't. There it wasn't a P frame duplication. It was a iframe removal, because what they did oh. was yeah, they they had um, Drake with the smoke bombs going on, and then a transition into that next scene, and uh, they basically deleted the iframes that uh, that were in between those two scenes, and they kind of melted together. Yeah, I understand that one, but with Travis walking away and then smearing, you're talking about that one, right? I'm pretty sure I use an iframe removal for that one too, but... Wow, I guess with the camera steady and then he's the only motion in the shot, that would make sense, right? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah there was... Wow. It's pretty easy to tell uh, the, the P-frame duplications versus the iframe duplications. And for the audience, those are the two different effects that, um, that Data Mosh produces. There's this concept of the iframe removal effect... And that's basically, oh God. <laughs> they'll figure it out. They'll go home and they'll download it and find out yeah, for themselves. Let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's let them look it up. <laughs> let's let them figure that out. You know, you, you were talking about uh, how you wish there was a way to know who was using it and how much they were using it. And I think that's a good segue into what you're starting to work on. Let's touch on that real quick before we get into the uh, you know next question. Just real quick, give the pitch of what, you're beginning to work on with, uh, you know, using a subscription model. And that's one of the beauties of the subscription model and a subscription platform is you're constantly collecting data from the customer and using that data to inform how you improve the product um, because it's recurring revenue. You're, you're always on the hook for making sure that they're using it. Um, so theoretically, you know, if you build the platform right, you should know exactly how much they're using the plugin and even possibly on what projects. So talk about, you know, what that next phase is for these plugins that you're, you know, going to try to usher in. So talk on that real quick. 
Sure. So, and we've seen this shift happen in all different types of industries where traditionally license-based products uh, move to be a subscription-based products. And the same thing has happened for uh, movies and such. Uh, so like Netflix and like music where you have now have, you subscribe to Spotify as opposed to buying each song. And so we think that there is going to be that similar shift happen when this very niche industry that is After Effects plugins. Um, so we are starting a company currently and working with a bunch of different authors, uh, plugin authors in the space to make a subscription based marketplace where me as a freelance designer is able to go and subscribe to this, um, this subscription based marketplace and have access to every single, um, after effects plugin that is out there. Now that's opposed to having to pay 40, $50 for every single plug-in on a one-off basis and just packaging it all up into a service that you can just subscribe to and you get access to all of them when you need them. So that is a, a little a little spiel about what we're working on in the, in the big picture. You know, I think it's a really cool model and I think it's the right time for, you know, everything is moving to subscriptions. We've talked about that on this podcast a number of times, so it just makes sense that you're applying it here. Um, but before we move on, you know, since we have established that you guys are experts and you know what you're talking about in this area, since you guys do know what you're talking about, you know, where can our audience find you if they want to learn more about you or a project that you're working on? Where can listeners of this podcast go to contact and find you guys? Um, so for me, that is an excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> Give them the plug. Um you can find me at dannyperry.me. Uh, that's my portfolio website. And I have all my contact information along with a lot of my different projects and some of the different products that I, uh, that I keep selling. And you guys can find me on Instagram, my domain of choice. <laughs> uh, it's that drone dude, three words, that drone dude. For a limited time only until I rebrand, because obviously I am so much more. I'm a man of many traits. <laughs> I got to like say, that. high self-esteem. That's key. Don't, I love that. Don't worry yourself. It, it used to be really flattering when people called me that drone dude, but now I see it as an insult because it's like, is that all you see in me? <laughs> cool. So so all let's right. go ahead and, and look forward. I mean, we've talked about digital media and, you know, we, we've talked about subscriptions. We've talked about VR a little bit. We've talked about some different aspects of it. Um, but looking forward, you know, digital media is something that impacts everybody's lives. So when you guys think about the future of this space, what are you most excited about? And then what is maybe something that people aren't thinking about when they look forward and they think about the future of what media is going to hold for them? Oh, wow. Well, Danny, do you want, Danny, you can kick it off if you want. I can name a lot of things that I'm scared of. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that in terms, I, I could definitely speak to the production side of things. Um, and I think that Dean, you might be more uh, able to speak to the consumer facing side of things than I am. Um, but I definitely see there's this big shift of all of the media production being a lot more decentralized. And you see these big production studios, editing studios that are getting rid of like their entire workforce and just outsourcing everything to freelancers. So in terms of the video production, I think that and we're getting closer and closer to being able to work 
wherever you want in terms of being a digital media producer. Uh, like I had a job where I was working at an editing studio in Chicago and they used to have about 30 employees and I worked there for maybe a, like one summer and they had already decreased like 50% of their workforce in that one summer. It was crazy. Um, and they just started outsourcing everything and it's just become all freelance. And I know that me personally, I'm able to work with agencies and brands that are on the West coast and, um, you know, on the East coast and nowhere near Lexington. And I'm still able to do work for them and, and function completely remotely from them. So I think that that's definitely a trend that we're going to start seeing more and more, especially since the, uh, consumers and the audiences these days are being more accustomed to um that more amateur content like i think you see it on snapchat especially wow. too yeah you see like that, it's just shot on like an iphone with just like it's more raw and personal it is yeah, it feels more personable yep it is so interesting to hear you talk about that as like a bonus because now i totally see where you're coming from especially as a creator but i actually came in here today wanting to talk about that is one of the things that terrifies me about where media is going yeah you know, because at the same time, it's like, yes, media production is decentralizing and companies are putting more trust in freelancers and going that route. But at the same time, it reminds me of what has happened in like the in Hollywood, in the TV and movie industry, where people that are innovating have shown that you can do things low budget and you can be creative with your media and grab attention just as well as spending a lot of money. I think about, you know, like found footage movies, Blair Witch Project, Poltergeist yeah, being produced totally. or, uh, you know, Paranormal Activity being produced for like less than $10,000. And it reminds me of these ads that I see now that disgust me when I watch these earn-in ads or I'm calling people out. Let's see. What's that? Postmates. The Postmates app. They have like the worst commercials where you, you can tell that they're going with two things. They're going with putting all their money in influencers and, um, and going with this, like they think it's charming, quantity over quality, amateur production. And it's intentional and it just drives me crazy. And what bothers me is that it works and that people honestly don't care about quality. They would rather see their favorite Vine star do a selfie mode ad, you know, just shouting out something that they promote or, you know, people would honestly rather see that than see like a really well-made ad. I love watching the Super Bowl for the commercials, but in the future, I'm scared that, you know, the biggest Super Bowl commercial will be Kim Kardashian holding an iPhone talking about some product. Yeah. And it, and it, it, it makes sense that they would do that because they'd make, they'd make just as much money and spend a fraction. Yeah, no, that's definitely, I would be concerned as an artist as well. Um, because ultimately, if they're doing it to save money, yeah, they're hurting the overall industry and the quality of it. So I totally understand that. My question is, what got us to this point that, got, that, that allowed for that to happen? Is it the YouTube? You know, YouTube ultimately is what came in and just totally disrupted video. I think YouTube started it, but it was an avalanche. Vine was like a yeah, massive yeah, totally. peg. But, that got um, people so used to just extreme short form content. Yeah. Just experiencing something and moving on. I think what really happened is that 
the advertising Hollywood TV industry since the 1920s always, we know, worked in a bubble. We know that Hollywood has always been out of touch with the social, with society. You know, they're always years behind. They don't know what people really want. And it took a long time for them to catch on. But YouTube and Vine and Twitter have showed corporations what people really care about. And I think it was just there. It was there all along. If in the 1970s, they had been tuned in to the status quo like they are now, if we had the internet in 1970... I think the same thing would have the happened. The best example I can think of, and this is from my experience at Fuji, was I worked really closely with MTV. MTV was at the peak of T, like that was peak TV. Like what they built as a brand for society and for culture is probably, it, 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 you can't think of many things bigger than MTV. Uh, and it was kind Do you of, mean back you know, in like their heyday? Yeah, yeah, back in their heyday. And then now they're totally shifting everything from, because they're forced to, from cable high production to social media, kind of that raw, you know, that that raw feel that we've been talking about. And that's probably one of the best examples of somebody that was forced to shift and, you know, kind of had a really hard time with that early on. But they're starting to, you know, make the turn with some of their recent initiatives. Um, And I kind of saw that firsthand. And I I didn't grow up around MTV as much as, you know, people that are in their 30s um, or even high 20s. But um, you know, I know how big of a brand they were, and they're not even close to what they used to be uh, due to what happened with, with cable TV, but they're really starting to make a good push on, on social media and, and start to move towards that raw feel. Yeah, but I think it, it's all this, like, back and forth of them always being behind. I, I don't know. I'm, try, I'm trying to work it out in my head exactly how corporate media makes this mistake it's because it takes so much to produce those shows and movies and so much planning ahead of time by the time the movie comes out or the show comes out i feel like so much has happened that they're just going to be behind every time that's true but it's also a matter of like false positives it's like if they if they make a a, if they make a, a partially good move they think that it's working they don't realize how much better it could be working if they had you know if they had been more tuned in so, Dean, like, I just, what do you think the ideal situation is then? Whether it's like Hollywood or or TV shows, how can, I think that how can they be what, on with the times? What they're missing, what they're missing right now is they think that, and, and I'm coming up with this on the fly. <laughs> what what they think right now is that what matters is is a name, is recognition, and that it's a race to the bottom in terms of production value. That like the least the least you spend to for like the same notoriety, it's all the better. But um, I just think what people care about, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of what people care about because it's authenticity that they care about. And they think that, you know, just having a familiar face is what matters, but what really matters is the authenticity, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I definitely yeah, think yeah, that there's room does. for both this amateur type content that we or, that we see a lot on Snapchat, and I, I I definitely see that primarily on Snapchat as opposed to any other um, source of media. But I definitely think that there's room for both that type of content and then the higher production content, especially when yeah. it comes to um, you know, more the brands that are more serious and they can't just get away with slapping some guy walking around with a, with a selfie camera. Like, I, I think that we'll start to see more brands trying to hit that authenticity note that you're talking about, Dean, 
and not have to yeah. just give away all their production value and make it seem like, you know, we're so authentic that we don't have to do anything for, for our videos. I, I don't think that that can last forever. Yeah, I think what I really mean is that they just don't know what they're doing right when they do something right. It's just like a like a complete lost in translation. One thing that Gary Vee talks about that I get is it's all about volume because you never know when something's going to go viral. I mean, look at, you know, X X Nas. Uh-huh. Like he was actually a meme professional. He was famous before he that song on Twitter. But Are you talking about out, Little Nas That's X? cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he said Xnos. He meant yeah. Lil yeah. Nas. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Hey, <laughs> big hype piece over there, Evan Knowles. Whatever. There we go. Uh, but yeah, he was like really good at social media and put out volume. Yeah. You know, he was all about volume, and then he had that one really great hit, and now it's the number one song in the history of Billboard. You know, it's yeah. like he just kept putting stuff out until something worked, and I think a lot of brands are starting to move towards that. And I mean, I get it because there's so many places that you need to be found and discovered and you're fighting for attention. So you just got to keep as much content out there, but it lowers the production quality because you just can't put that much time into every one of those pieces. But ultimately something's going to come across and really go viral. So, I mean, I, I get it. I get both sides, yeah. but there's always going to be, you know, Netflix is always going to be putting out really good premium quality. Disney is always going to be doing that. But there's, like you said, going to be two sides to the market. Well, you know, you just walked me into a great analogy because Netflix does it better than anyone. Netflix understands that what, you know, what this X factor is that we're missing is the authenticity. So when Netflix does something with a third party, like uh, their stand-up specials, they just give the comedian whatever their rate is. They just buy the episode outright. You know, they, they have no, nothing involved with production value. They don't write... They don't uh, have any uh, like, input. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Coffee and Cars yeah, series. Yeah. Like, that's mm -hmm. a great series. And you can tell like it didn't take a whole lot of production value to make that happen. No, because they just let him do whatever he yeah, wants. Yeah, and it's just Jerry like Seinfeld. You know, he's going to make something great. All the other stand-ups, uh, they just let so, him run away with it. So we're talking about high production quality. And you know, one, of the, one of the things we wanted to talk about in this episode, because you know, Dean, you're so into it and, and passionate about it. And I've been to your house and I've tried it. You know, it blew my mind and I've tried it before big, you know, conferences and that's VR. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like right now where production is really starting to culminate and create these amazing experiences. I'm a and VR I think, fiend. I think we need to have an episode by itself to touch on that. We're not going to be able to cover it all right now, but just real quick, talk about what you think, you know, VR is becoming and where it'll go. Um, and then to finish, let's all, let's tie this back into Lexington if we can and talk about what Lexington's doing right and wrong. Uh, but touch on that for for like five minutes real quick on, on totally. what VR is. Well, we need to do a whole deep dive on we VR. Will, yeah. And you guys can just leave me in the room for an hour and go get coffee. And I'll let you know when I'm done. But let me just give you the brass tacks for people who have never experienced VR. This is my two-minute pitch. Imagine the year is 1920. And I come over to your house and I go, dude, you have got to go over to Evan's house. He has this crazy thing in his living room. It's like a box, and you stare at it, and it's like a whole other reality inside. You see people moving and talking, and they can look right at you, and you hear them, and they have like whole lives going on. And you can see other places in the world. Like You can go all the way around the world, and then you can just turn it right off and on again. That 
would be what it would be like if I was explaining to you a TV in the 1920s. That's what VR is today. It's an entirely new medium of, you know, a digital medium that you've never experienced. So you really can't wrap your mind around it. If I, you know, tried to explain a TV to you in the 1920s, you, you may or may not be interested in it. A lot of people weren't into movies back in the day. Moving pictures was like magic. The fact that you could take 24 frames and just put all those together in a second and see motion. I mean, the first people to watch a movie ran out of the theater because they thought a train was going to come through the screen. That's what virtual reality is today. And the, the tragedy for me is I have been experiencing the development of VR since 2013. Six years ago, I got my first headset. Maybe seven. Uh, it, you know, I was actually probably closer to 2012 when I got the Oculus development kit too. And before that, my friend Nick had the DK1. And I remember when positional tracking came out and you could actually stand up and move around. It was mind-breaking in a way that I can't explain. But the tragedy of it is that people will try out something on their phone or something that they see at the mall. I hate all those mall kiosks that don't have like proper fidelity immersive VR that are just ruining people's perceptions of it. Um, but the real thing that I, I try to explain to people is this. VR is not a video game system. It, it does not need to have anything to do with video games. The fact that it does is kind of a detriment to itself because one of the really interesting things that I learned today when I was researching this podcast, um, I was listening to John Carmack at the Oculus Connect conference this year, and he said that the statistics for their VR headsets are that people are using them 50-50 for gaming. Half the time people are playing games and half the time people are doing anything else. They're watching movies. They're going to music concerts out in the virtual world with other people. I witnessed the entire Democratic presidential like campaign in VR. I watched the first two Democratic debates and then the election in VR, standing in Times Square with people all around the world. I was literally standing in a virtual space, the only American with all these you know, multinational people around me. And we're all just talking about American politics. They're asking me what it's like to live in America. Recently, uh, you looked at me and you said, dude, I got to go home and get back into VR. I'm yeah. like, I'm like uh, I just want to get back there. Today, Talk about what that, what's that feeling. And once you've experienced it and kind of dug into it, why, why, why do you want to go back and just like leave the bar and go get back into the VR? You know? Yeah. And it'll be a going on. It'll be a huge debate going forward over the next 10, 20 years on if that's something that is viewed as a positive or a negative. Because in one way, you're leaving reality, but in another way, you're going to you know, experience a whole nother one. Absolutely. So talk about you know, why you want to leave a bar and go into a VR headset. Like, Why is it that unique? Yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing. I totally get how weird it is. And I understand that you know, it's kind of a, a socially inept thing to you know, want to put a box over your head and disappear from the room you're in. But uh, one thing I want to explain. I, I said earlier, the person that got me into virtual reality was my childhood friend, Nick. And we got both VR headsets when they first came out over six years ago. And Nick moved to Los Angeles about two years ago to work for the biggest, one of the biggest virtual reality production companies in the world, Magnopus. And he works over there in L.A., and I don't see him anymore. We talk about once a month, but we used to be best friends, talk every single day. And only now, he and I have found a VR game that we both like enough 
that we put on our headsets almost every night. And it's like I'm standing face to face with my best friend. And now with the new controllers, he's making hand gestures and, you know, talking with his hands like he always does, like way too often. And when I make him laugh, I can actually see him buckle over and grab his knees like he always does and like push his head down into his chest. He laughs just like he does in real life because I'm standing there talking to my buddy like face to face. So VR is, um, you know, it's an isolating thing and, and an immersive thing, but it's also all about bringing people together. I was listening to John Carmack also today talking about how now that they've been bought by Facebook, especially social is their greatest goal at Oculus and how his dream is that people will buy an Oculus Go just to be able to talk to their loved ones around the world. So um, that, that's, that's what I really love about it. I'm able to, I'm able to have face-to-face -face interactions with other people online. All the games that I play are multiplayer, and all the experiences that I do are multiplayer because I love the social aspect of talking to strangers, even in you know, normal life. And uh, yeah, I was I was just at a big conference in Seattle. Um, it was a tech conference specifically for the architecture space. Nice, one of the biggest initiatives there, and I think a lot of money is being pumped into virtual reality from that space. Totally, because what they're doing is while you're designing a building in real time, you put a wall up and you put a ceiling on it and you put a painting on the wall in real time. You just jump into that space. You're in the actual size, and you can see what that looks like as you're designing it and walk around the building in real time with a VR headset. And not just you, but your coworkers. Yes, if they have a headset, everybody. even if they're in another city, if they're you over can, in L.A. You can build an entire building in virtual rea reality and be there present before the building's even constructed or even like planned out. You're sitting there building a whole other world, and then that's actually going to turn into physical space. It's just a wild thing that's about to happen to the world, especially in the construction and architecture space. And it's very apparent, and I think a lot of the big initiatives behind VR and the funding is actually going to come from that space because it's one of the biggest industries that has yet to be really affected by technology. And I think VR is going to be that thing that just completely changes it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're totally right and nail on the head with real estate, but the real thing is almost any abstract or artistic field that you can name, people are realizing all the applications for virtual reality. One of the biggest applications that I learned, like right off the gate in 2012, was education. Because yeah. one of the first experiences I did was putting on my headset and exploring our solar system and, and getting a, a real, real world sense of the scale of the universe, getting to go to Pluto and Saturn and everything. But um, I mean, the applications are endless because anything that you work on abstracted in the real world, meaning something where you have to have a layer of abstraction in order to work with it, like real estate is a perfect example. You're drawing on a piece of paper something that's in the third dimension. Yeah. You know, there's no great way to do that. Even on a computer with your mouse and keyboard, it's clunky. And, uh, you know, anything artistic, anything uh, large scale, if you're working with scale, um, in the construction industry, it's it's huge in construction and real estate. Anywhere where there is distance between you and what you're consuming. So, for instance, you can sit courtside during an NBA game and yep. sit in your you know living room. That's an example of where VR makes sense because you're closing the gap of distance between you yeah. and the ultimate entertainment. So, 
Yeah, you know, it makes a ton of sense. And also anything that is dangerous. Anything, yeah. absolutely yeah. anything that is dangerous. There's flight training, military training, medical training. Yeah, so let's tie, like we said, it closes the distance. Let's tie the distance down into, uh, into Lexington. So let's close that gap. Um, let's talk about what Lexington is doing on the digital media front, digital entertainment. Uh, I get the feeling there's not a whole lot going on. Um, there are some, some companies here doing some, I wouldn't even say interesting things, but they're doing digital media. <laughs> um, so if, if, if there are companies I don't know about or cool things you know, going on in the space, let's talk about that. And let's talk about what it takes to cultivate you know, a digital entertainment kind of ecosystem. So you know, one of you guys can take that. Sure. Well, I, I'm sure Danny probably knows probably some of the best creatives in town, but I can say that I am super impressed with just the amount of video production companies that keep popping up in Lexington I didn't know about. When we were working at Fuji, I had never heard of Oculus Studios, whose shout out to Oculus Studios, making some of the coolest content for some of the most not cool clients. <laughs> just, in, just in the sense that um, they're able to, uh, I didn't mean to make that sound like a dig. They're able to make really, really engaging content that doesn't seem like it comes out of Lexington for some really, really local clients. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the problem with this region is there's not a whole lot of big clients putting the budget out there for the really cool stuff to happen without them making sacrifices. You know, they're kind of doing it. Yeah, but that's when, to... that's when you innovate as a creator, and that's yeah, what impresses absolutely. me about Oculus. Yeah. But another company, because I was just in um, kind of a cool segue, I was in Amsterdam just a few weeks ago with App Harvest, and I checked my Instagram about a week later, and uh, the Media Collaboratory here in Lexington reached out to me, where I know Danny knows we uh, have filmed a, shot a couple of his uh, his company promotions. Yep. But the Media Collaboratory reached out to me and they said, hey, we know you were in uh, Amsterdam last week. We're going to be there next week. Is there anything we need to know about flying drones? And I was just immensely impressed that uh, this Lexington uh, video production company was making the same rounds I was. Yeah. No, it's, it's good you mentioned those because, you know, they weren't. I'm glad we you know asked you that because uh, I didn't have as much awareness about those. Um, that's why we had you on in the first place. Yeah, yeah, totally. Talk about that, Danny. What about you? Um, what about what are some companies around here that that impress you? Yeah, um, yeah. Aqua Studio is very cool. Media Collaboratory. They're good people over there. They've been here for a decent amount of time. Um, the uh, Wrigley Media Studios yeah. is a pretty big one. They've got. Um, I've been over there. A decent amount of employees over there. We're doing some pretty big things. Um, a really big motion graphics studio that goes under the radar radar quite a bit. It's actually only two blocks away from where Fuji is located in Lexington is this company called the Furrow. And uh, they're doing a bunch of different work for clients such as LG, Facebook, Google, Twitter. They got really big names. Um, And one of the ways they're able to do this and be based in Lexington is going back to that idea of decentralization and being able to do all these different things remotely. And I think that really is... Uh, more prominent in the motion graphics industry as opposed to the videography because obviously you need to be on location in order to uh, shoot uh, like a certain location or a certain subject. But with motion graphics, you're able to really make that type of art anywhere in the world. 
And I think that's why these different companies, such as the furrow, are able to um, to flourish and to work with these enormous brands is because one and, and live in Lexington is because they're able to do all this stuff remotely and <clears throat> and these bigger brands are putting more trust into these different studios that are remote and are capable of doing these these really big projects while still being remote. So uh, yeah. the furrows a, is a really cool example of of a company in in an agency studio that is able to work with really big names um, all the while still being based in Lexington. You know, speaking of the furrow, you know, the, the Lexington company, the startup Truman's. Oh yeah. That's the name, right? Yeah. Yeah, We've had them on here. Yeah. Danny, have you seen their media? Because some of their branding, not only was it super impressive, but it sounded, it looked like it could have come out of the furrow. It could have just as easily come out of Oculus to be honest. So I could see that they're really well connected in the yeah. Lexington space. I yeah, bet they're Alex using a lot there. of the local talent. Yeah, for real. Um, so what is it going to take to improve the ecosystem here in Lexington for digital media? Oh, well, I can step in right there. Number one is communication, because I talk to so many creatives here in Lexington, not on the not on the uh, motion graphics editing side, but on at least the content creation side. There's so many photographers, videographers, illustrators here in Lexington that are working freelance every day in the exact same circles that aren't talking to each other. You know what you need to do? What? What we're doing right here. Yeah. That's why we started the podcast. Talk about the it. Tech space. Just talk about it. On a, make a podcast about it, bro. You know, I mean, I've been thinking about that exact thing. <laughs> I shot I shot my uh, third short film just a couple weekends ago. We wrapped filming, mm-hmm. and it was my first big production, hiring a crew. And uh, I just turned to my director and I said, do you want to be in my first podcast episode? Because <laughs> I think I think that there is an opportunity for that. Because yeah. everybody that I talk to here in Lexington complains about not knowing enough creatives. And I yeah. know all these creatives, yeah. this massive network of like little one-off social circles that don't communicate. Because I think a lot of them think that they're competitors when they're not. Yeah, they all so, do yeah. different things probably. Not only do so many of us do different things, but there's so much work to go around. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have to turn down so much video work here in Lexington, and almost every single time I try to pass it off to someone. I got someone a gig just today. Yeah. Huh. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts, Danny? What, what needs to improve around here? Um, well, I, I think that a lot of media creation stems from um, – big brands like that you're not going to have that big influx of media creation if there's not someone who's going to be there paying for it so as lexington continues to grow and we get more startups coming in here we get bigger brands that are willing to participate in this in in this city uh i really see the need for more and more digital media production um increasing with with that so i think that as we see our city start to scale a bit more we see more brands and companies coming in here, we're really going to see a bigger need for that type of media production. And when there's that bigger need, there will be people that come in and are able to fill that gap. Um, I think that Kentucky or University of Kentucky can do a little bit better job of enhancing that or at least providing the workforce to fill that gap when it does come. Because right now, um, they're... they're, I can't speak towards their videography department, but I know their motion graphics department, which is, again, a very big piece of digital media creation. 
is, is pretty lacking. I remember taking a digital media class at UK and I, I went in there and I was like telling the instructor, like how to use after effects and then, like, this ridiculous. <laughs> and I was a freshman. I didn't know, yeah. I didn't know shit about after effects at that point. So. But I'll tell you something, Danny, those two points work hand in hand because if creatives here in Lexington would just be a little bit more outgoing and, and just be a little bit more willing to discover the opportunities that are already around them, that's what makes, that's what put, puts Lexington on the map as a creative space. You know, I, I only in the past couple of years have gotten to a point where I get more offers to do video than I can handle. And that only came from simply putting my foot out the door. And I think there's so many people in Lexington more talented than me that think that they're waiting for some wave of opportunity or think that they're waiting for some moment or some connection that is right there readily available in front of them. It's yeah. Now. I, I think it I think it is here now. And I think a lot of people think that they have trepidation for something that's already here. If you just if you just take some initiative. Yeah, I, I think that that definitely holds true to some parts of the media creation process. But when it comes to my area that I specialize in, which is motion graphics, I don't see that there's that big of a need or a, uh, or an amount of work that I can sustain myself from just doing Lexington clients. And that's why I'd say only about 5% of the work that I do actually comes from Lexington. And I've been in contact with the different studios around here with whether it be Rigby Media or the Media Collaboratory or the Furrow. Um, the Furrow obviously being the only exception, but they are only working with clients that are not in Lexington from what I'm aware of. So I, I would like to see more brands that come into the space with an actual desire for motion graphics and for that type of the digital, uh, the digital media experience. Because I, like I said, most of the work that I get and while I am fairly in tune with the need for motion graphics in Lexington does not come from Lexington. You know, you're absolutely right because it's a completely different industry. But if every videographer that I knew would reach out to you when they need a logo animated, you'd have more work than you can deal with. You know, I, I think to some degree, people try to be competitive when they need to be collaborative. That, that That's my magic answer.